I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with Corey Valancourt. He's the politics editor for the Smoky Mountain News and a BPR News contributor. Corey, thanks for joining us. Hey, Matt. Happy New Year. Always uh, happy to be here on the porch with you. Well, Happy New Year. At least it's been a happy year for the first three weeks because we really haven't had to delve into our political coverage as yet as we're in this sort of uh, holding pattern. Maybe the snow this week is a good metaphor for it. It's just uh, stopping all of us and making us sit and think about uh, a lot of things. But North Carolina politics really right now in just a a stasis because we're all waiting for this Supreme Court decision that's going to come in February. So this has to do with the maps that were drawn by legislators. Legislative Republicans in the General Assembly, they control both chambers, and they deal with congressional districts and state legislative districts for Senate and uh, general, uh, to stay a Senate and House of Representatives seats. So that's where we are right now. Um, so take us through how we got to the point where we're at right now uh, here in the beginning of January. Well, you're exactly right, Matt. It has been a really tranquil time since around um, early December. The way we got here, it's a little complicated, but uh, we've been trying to follow along. So Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution uh, calls for a census every 10 years. We've been doing this for more than 200 years. We count up all the people in the country and in every state, and then we redraw our maps based on population shifts. Obviously, some states lose population, other states gain population. North Carolina was one of those that gained population, so... Uh, Around springtime of last year, we started talking about redrawing these congressional and legislative maps, and the General Assembly, that is their role. Uh, The governor does not have a say in this. He can't veto the maps. And so uh, the Republican-dominated General Assembly then embarked on a months-long tour. I think there were 15 or so public hearings. Uh, A couple hundred people attended each one of them, including the one held out here at Cullowee, Everybody said on both sides of the aisle, uh, we don't want gerrymandering. Republicans said, we don't want gerrymandering. Democrats said, we don't want gerrymandering. So the General Assembly gerrymandered these maps. So these new maps are projected to give Republicans a 10-4 advantage in the congressional districts. That means that our congressional delegation that goes to Washington would have 10 Republicans and four Democrats in a state that uh, gave President Trump a victory in 2020 by just 1.6 points. So I think you can understand why people are uh, somewhat outraged at these maps. Uh, The General Assembly approved the maps, I believe it was in October or November, but lawsuits were filed uh, before the maps were even approved. And so that lawsuit alleging partisan gerrymander went to a three-judge panel in the Wake County Superior Court, There are two Republicans and one Democrat on that court. Their ruling uh, that came out last week was unanimous, and it was very interesting because they literally said, these maps are a pro-Republican partisan gerrymander. However, they went on to say that partisan gerrymandering in North Carolina is not illegal. So obviously an appeal was filed. That appeal, as we speak, is sitting somewhere in the North Carolina Supreme Court. Meanwhile, candidate filings were halted uh, as they started to consider these court cases because candidates can't rightly file for office if they don't know what their districts are going to be. So that was what you were alluding to earlier, uh, all of the, I guess, rush of filings for these congressional and state legislative seats uh, was put on pause, and that's where we're still sitting today. We're awaiting that Supreme Court ruling and trying to determine whether or not the maps presented by the General Assembly will hold 
for the November election or if they're going to have to be redrawn. And we just talked to Bob Orr, a former state Supreme Court justice on the show about the ruling from the appellate court. And just it's very, which you which you mentioned, it really kind of clearly um, bring, brings into clear relief the pol- political situation, not just in North Carolina, but I think across the country. They ruled that, yes, the maps were gerrymandered. But was it illegal? And according to the appellate court, it was not illegal. So that really clearly distills our politics here right now, right? Uh, It really does. And, you know, North Carolina is not the only state going through this. In fact, I think Illinois is almost the exact opposite of North Carolina. Illinois lost a seat due to population uh, shifts. And so they're forced to redraw maps and lose a congressional district. And in that state, it's Democrats who are in charge of that process. And the Democrats are gerrymandering those districts in Illinois. And so this is not exclusive to North Carolina or to Republicans. Uh, or to even 2020. This has been going on for as long as we've been redrawing maps. And um, if you know anything about North Carolina politics, our courts often have the final say in those matters. And we have experience with this in North Carolina. You hinted at that, but really the entire last decade, it felt like the politics of North Carolina over gerrymandering were spent in the courts. So uh, we are somewhat used to this, unfortunately. So uh, we're waiting for that ruling. It comes at the end of February. Right now, though, this week, we hear that the General Assembly, the Republicans in charge of the General Assembly that hold power, are looking at moving the primary to June. Um, That could be a hint at what they think may happen with the Supreme Court ruling, but it also has a lot of other impacts. So take us through some of those. Yeah. So originally the primary was scheduled for March 8th. Uh, When the original court case was filed, they moved that to May 17th. And then just uh, Wednesday, just a few days ago, uh, January 19th, the General Assembly did vote to move that primary once again from May 17th to June 7th. Now, the reason that uh, people are speculating is they, they feel that the Supreme Court is going to strike down these maps, and uh, if there's not enough time, the Supreme Court would just redrop the maps themselves. Now, that's a problem for General Assembly Republicans because the Supreme Court has a 4-3 Democratic majority, so you can imagine what kind of maps they might try to draw. So it's speculated that some of these districts are going to be uh, struck down and that the General Assembly wants to have a crack at redrawing those maps. Um But there are practical implications to moving this primary once again even further. It's a much longer primary season than normal. Uh, What is that going to do in our U.S. Senate race? It seems like Democrats have kind of coalesced around one candidate, and Republicans are still fighting it out. You've got uh, former Congressman Mark Walker. You've got current Congressman Ted Budd. And then you've got former Governor Pat McCrory. So these guys are going to have to spend more money beating each other up through June to determine who goes to the general election, while Democrats just basically kind of sit back and watch them do that, uh, probably with a big smile on their face. The other thing that I think is interesting is that by moving this to June, students at universities won't likely be at those universities. And so uh, the ones that do vote here or that have registered in North Carolina, maybe they go home to Atlanta or they go home to uh, the coast, to Wilmington. They might not be as excited to vote in these races. They may not request an absentee ballot. Uh, of course, most universities, um, the students there are liberal. And so this could hurt Democrats in that way. So 
And we have seen the college vote have some impact uh, in 2018. Democrats picked up two very crucial statehouse uh, seats that were in districts that contain uh, both Appalachian State and Western Carolina University. Of course, that's a general election and that won't get moved. So as we await these rulings, um, chaos has already really happened here because of the delay, which was kind of expected, then the appeal, which was completely expected over these lawsuits. Um, but we have people chiefly Madison Cawthorn, a congressman currently for Western North Carolina, looking to run in another district uh, next year. If these maps are thrown out, we're going to have to have districts redrawn. That could totally change who runs where. Um, so, yeah, you've been tracking this. What happens? Or what do you think is going to happen? Or, or I don't know, what, you know, what, what, again, how much more chaos are we going to see? Well, we do have chaos, but we do not yet have maximum chaos. I think uh, we're all kind of looking to see if that's going to happen. In my mind, maximum chaos means they completely redraw these maps. Madison Cawthorn has to redo his political calculus, and it could end up with him coming back to the district that elected him. Uh, We call it NC-11, but they've proposed calling it NC-14. We don't know if that's going to stick or not, but uh, that would certainly put him in a pickle because— Certainly, he weighed the pros and cons of his decision to leave the district that elected him. Certainly, he knew there would be some blowback. Well, in my reporting around here, I've seen some pretty diehard Republicans uh, with some not-so-nice things to say about Cawthorn, um, that he's abandoned the district and he's left them, and he promised to go to Washington to fight for them, and now he's abandoning them. I've heard those exact words from Republicans. So if he comes back to this district... Uh, I keep using the analogy of cheating on one significant other. You know, you have to come back, crawl back into the into the house and say, baby, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And if I did mean it, it didn't mean what you thought it meant. And if it did mean what you thought it meant, it's not what I wanted to happen. And so there's a lot of mental gymnastics that would have to go into that. And I think uh, Representative Cawthorn probably has his fingers crossed that things don't change too much. And he can still carry out his plan to run in that uh, brand new 13th congressional district that the, the General Assembly drew. Obviously, we're just talking about the, the the races right now that are under this ruling, which are uh, congressional seats, House of Re- U.S. House of Representative seats, and then state Senate and state House of Representative seats. So much more is on the ballot this year in North Carolina. Some really, really critical and crucial local races. City of Asheville is going to elect mayor and, um, again, city council seats. I think a lot of people are going to be watching that. Buncombe County as well, depending on what the, the lines are drawn in Buncombe County. The commissioners are, you know, have to, the commissioner districts follow the state line districts and they have to wait until that's all decided. Uh, the state house district uh, lines in Buncombe County. So they have to wait for the court ruling to come down to see how that shakes out. There are some other things that you're going to be looking at, too, some races that are really, really crucial. And I think they've come into, again, some more clear relief in the past few years about how particularly important these positions are, and that is sheriff. And counties will be electing sheriffs. Tell us about what you're looking at as, uh, as we get ready once candidate filing uh, can start and we can get ready for a primary date. What are you looking at in sheriff's races across Western North Carolina? People don't generally think of sheriffs as an elected position until they show up at the ballot box and see a name on there. You know, we think it's law enforcement, but it is a countywide elected position in all 100 counties in North Carolina. Uh, These sheriffs, in addition to maintaining the detention centers and things like that, they do have a pretty substantial political role. We saw that a couple of years back when the Second Amendment sanctuary movement started uh, coming out of Virginia and into North Carolina. 
What that was all about was citizens were approaching their county commissioners and saying, we want you to pass a resolution that says that we will not enforce laws that we don't believe are constitutional. And they're talking strictly about gun control measures. Now, let's just never mind the fact that no one in any county is qualified or um, entitled to determine the constitutionality of a law that has a legal process, and that's how that's resolved. But nonetheless, folks were asking sheriffs, and some of them agreed, to say, we will not enforce any gun control laws. Now, our sheriff here in Haywood County said basically what I just told you, which is, it's not my decision as to whether these laws are constitutional or not. That's a matter for the courts. I have to enforce the laws that are on the books, and if gun control regulations are passed, like it or not, I will enforce them. Uh, other sheriffs did not share that view. So that's one way that the politicization of law enforcement affects everyday citizens. Uh, the other way is uh, Madison Cawthorn actually benefited from this tremendously during his run. He got endorsements from local sheriffs. These people are community fixtures. They're involved in local issues. They go to Raleigh and advocate for policies like uh, the STOP Act for opioids and all sorts of um, you know, other issues in their communities. And so they are part politician, part law enforcement, and they carry a lot of weight. Uh, not only within their department, but within their community. And so when you find out your sheriff has endorsed a particular candidate, uh, there's a good chance that you will consider that very heavily. Now, uh, our sheriff here in Haywood County, uh, Greg Christopher, he has announced that he is not running. I think we already have four candidates, two on each side, vying for that seat. Uh, I think, I want to say Jackson County and or Macon County's sheriffs are both retiring or not seeking re-election. I believe Cherokee County, their sheriff is not seeking re-election. So not only do you lose all that institutional knowledge and experience in the law enforcement realm, it could significantly change the political landscape. If uh, Republican candidates are going out looking for endorsements from sheriffs, well, some of them might be Democrat this time, and it's probably not in the works for them. So uh, those, as you said, are very important races and also very overlooked races by voters who don't really consider it a political issue. So as we go forward, another thing that came out this month was a poll from the John Locke Foundation with Civitas in North Carolina that looked at Republican uh, preferences for Senate and for president in 2024. But I think one of the things you and I broke down here, and you've been doing some reporting about this and talking to some Republicans about the growing uh, schism that exists between the pro-Trump and the non-Trump uh, parts of the party is, here's the numbers from this. Donald Trump had an 80% favorable rating in this poll, but when asked who they would vote for in 2024, Republicans in this poll only said President, uh, former President Trump 47%, so under 50% supporting him. Um, there's a lot of other numbers we can go through in here, but that's an interesting uh, number, I think, to find there. And as you've been doing your report, Reporting here of recently, how is that poll number essentially without knowing it? How is that poll number showing up in some of the reporting you've been doing? Ever since the 2020 election, my number one question following it was what is the ongoing influence of Donald Trump? And when I was, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the election, people were 100% behind him still. After the insurrection, that dropped significantly. Uh, through the summer, I was at a rally in Greensboro where the president um, uh, spoke and actually endorsed Ted Budd for U.S. Senate. Uh, I talked to local Republican leaders, uh, district chairs, county chairs. 
they still said it was about 90% support uh, for Trump from their Republican parties. This poll kind of flies in the face of that. However, it does kind of jive with a conversation I recently had with the lieutenant governor of Georgia, a guy by the name of Jeff Duncan. So Jeff Duncan in September uh, was very visible uh, as campaigning got really heavy in Georgia for president. And as we know, it did turn blue. Joe Biden did win the state. But it was basically the epicenter of the big lie. Uh, We all heard the Trump phone call where he asked the secretary of state to find him 11,780 votes. Mark Meadows, our former congressman here, uh, Trump's chief of staff, was also on that call. Uh, It's yet to be determined if anything illegal transpired during that call, but certainly people were shocked at the pressure tactics. So as that movement progressed, Duncan, Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, he wrote a book. Uh, It's called GOP 2.0, How the 2020 Election Can Lead to a Better Way Forward for America's Conservative Party. Now, obviously, that book made some waves. Uh, Just a quick rundown on it. Uh, He basically is trying to drag the Republican Party kicking and screaming away from the Trump legacy. And, uh, you know, we can go into detail about what he believes the party should do and how it should proceed. But he did say, you know, certainly this is applicable to the National Party. He said Republicans should be spending their time concentrating on many of the big wins that they achieved during the Trump administration. Uh, But his plan to move forward with this, he calls it his pet project, P-E-T. This stands for policy, empathy, and tone. So talk about your winnings, talk positively, be empathetic, don't call people losers and, you know, everything that Trump was really known for. And then tone, uh, you know, very similar thing, be a little bit more, uh, I suppose, um, I don't want to say bland, but be a little more straightforward in your remarks. He, yeah, Duncan has said, you know, people have been leaving the Republican Party left and right. They haven't left the principles. They have just left the person. And so uh, getting back to this Civitas poll and Trump's overall um, approval rating, I asked Duncan, I said, right now, uh, what's the percentage of the National Republican Party that still supports Trump? And he said, well, I think it's about 50 percent. So that jives perfectly with the Civitas poll. Uh, If the poll's right and if Duncan's right, uh, we may see the rebirth of what Duncan calls America's conservative party uh, without Donald Trump. And so I asked Duncan specifically, does this apply to North Carolina? You know, this is a fairly similarly situated state. We've got a lot of rural areas, a lot of urban areas. It's very close to 50-50. Uh, it did not vote for pre- uh, for President Biden in 2020. However, uh, it was certainly close. And so I think we've got a little piece of tape here where Duncan kind of explains how this uh, type of thinking is coming to a state near you, including North Carolina. What we're being used as in Georgia is a testing ground, a proving ground, a pawn uh, by, by, by some that want to just try to prove or disprove their political theories. And so this has become... Uh, their, their, their laboratory. Uh, but I can assure the rest of the country that this nonsense and chaos uh, is coming to a state near them if we don't stop this, this trajectory towards uh, chaos. Now, certainly the president's influence is going to be felt in this GOP Senate primary. He endorsed Ted Budd. Um, Mark Walker was endorsed by Madison Cawthorn. And then there's former Governor Pat McCrory, the only one of the three who has won a statewide race and has the most uh, voter name recognition, certainly. Um, so we'll see it come out in that. 
You also interviewed Congressman Cawthorn as the counterpoint to uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan's from Georgia, his comments. What did Congressman Cawthorn say to you? Well, certainly it's predictable. Uh, he does not agree with Lieutenant Governor Duncan, um, but he put forth something that's really interesting that I had not heard before, and I want to kind of share that with you. Um, he said, a lot of people call it the America First agenda, and I credit Donald Trump with starting that movement, but now it's being decentralized. Now there's really no leader of it. It's the people who are leading. I genuinely believe that the America First movement is all about putting Americans first. So that is an interesting concept because in a party uh, that is such a cult of personality based around Trump, uh, Democrats seem to have a big target on uh, former President Trump. And if he's not in the picture, they may think, okay, fine, we're, ho we're home free, we're safe. Uh, however, if you want to believe what uh, Cawthorn believes, he said he was familiar with uh, the book but hadn't read it, that getting rid of Donald Trump is not going to end the movement that he created. And so um, I think he used the words, cut the head off the snake. Um, it's not going to kill the snake. In fact, all the snakes are going to be reborn as lions or something like that. So um, that really shoots some holes in those folks who hope to be able to uh, rid the party of Trump and, and um, regain a, a more uh, sober track for the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to see how that ends up playing out. Absolutely. But like so much, we are beholden right now to a state Supreme Court ruling that's going to tell us when the vote's going to take place and when people can start filing and all those sorts of things. We do want to mention this also. You were in D.C. a year ago. Um, when President Biden was inaugurated just a few weeks after the insurrection, you interviewed Congressman Cawthorn while he was there. And I think in some of your previous reporting, we've shown how much uh, his words in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection have uh, changed uh, since then into as we are now in 2022. But um, you were there a year ago. What do you remember and what do you reflect on a year later of what you saw there uh, in, in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, 2021? I've spent lots of time in Washington in my life, and I know you have as well coming from the uh, the station in D.C. And still the thing that sticks with me the most is how surreal it was to see that town fenced up, shut down. Of course, COVID was in full swing and vaccines were not yet widely available at the time. And so between COVID, the insurrection, the fencing around the National Mall, um, you know, D.C. is a fun town. It's a town that likes to party. It, it works hard. It plays hard. None of that was happening when I was there. Um, my photographer and I, Jeffrey Delanoy, walking the streets, trying to get around. Uh, certain um, subway stations were closed. That's what really still sticks with me. Um, can I tell the body armor story? Do you want to hear the body armor story? <clears throat> so I've told this story to a few friends, but I don't think I've ever um, put it into um, – uh, print or, or broadcast media, but uh, it was actually January 20th and we had worked all day long and finally sat down about 10 p.m. at a restaurant to have dinner and have a beer. And I look at my cell phone and I've got a call from an Arlington, Virginia phone number. And that's where we were staying. We were at the Ritz-Carlton in Arlington, uh, Pentagon City. And I said, well, gosh, why is someone from Virginia calling me? And so I, I missed the call I checked the voicemail, and it was an Arlington County detective who was requesting that I call him back immediately. And so I went outside, and I did that. And, uh, you know, just talking about how surreal the situation was, 
Prior to going to Washington, I had to watch and attend several different webinars, training sessions. One of them uh, by the DART School of Journalism at Columbia was called Covering Riots and Civil Unrest. So we were certainly prepared after what we saw at the insurrection. We had no idea if it was going to be violent or not. And so uh, both my photographer and I, we had body armor and we had brought it with us. So we quickly determined that the town was a ghost town and everything was very quiet there. And so I didn't wear it very much. I think I only wore it on one day. The rest of the time it was sitting in the hotel room. So this detective wanted to know why we had body armor. And, and he said, can I ask you a few questions about that? And I said, okay, let me ask you a question first. Is it illegal to possess this in your county? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, um, you probably know the answers to this because you're a detective, but I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm with my photographer. We we brought body armor because at the end of this assignment, we just want to be able to go home to our families just like you. And so I really give them credit for checking up on this. But then when I sat down and thought about it, um, and as we've seen details of January 6th emerge since then, uh, apparently before the January 6th insurrection, uh, people were pouring into town and pouring into hotel rooms, bringing big weapons cases and military-style gear. Um, I'm not sure about weapons, but certainly armor and helmets and gas masks. And so hotels started calling local law enforcement, uh, just alerting them to that. Well, local law enforcement stayed on the case after the insurrection through the inauguration just to make sure no other funny business was going to take place. And uh, they just wanted to be sure that we were not going there to cause trouble. So uh, he said I was his last call of the night, and he got to go home after talking to me, and he was satisfied with the answers. But again, adding to the surreal situation of a town, a world-class town, the capital of planet Earth, being closed down from COVID, fenced off because of the insurrection, detectives are calling us about body armor. I really thought, God, what reality is this? What timeline is this? Where did we get so off track? You and I are prone to very dark humor at times, but we'll finish it this way. Don't put it away, or at least put it in a place you know where it is. I really hope neither of us have to have these conversations anymore. It's, I was in DC a few days before the inauguration last year, and it hurt my heart, having been there for 10 years. It probably would have hurt my heart even if I hadn't been there for 10 years. So I really hope this is just an anecdote you shared with us that is just something of the era, something of the time, and that that's all it ever ends up being. But we know as we're going into 2022 and who knows what ahead of that for the next few years that this is just an anecdote and it's not a precursor to other things. Yeah, nobody wants this to become a regular occurrence. Uh, when I became a journalist, I certainly never thought I would have to call my publisher and tell him that the Ritz-Carlton housekeepers had found my body armor. It's a rather absurd statement, but it happened. All right, Corey Valancourt, as always, thanks for joining us. Matt, my pleasure.